Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from Macomb, Illinois, and we have got a great show for you today. We are talking all about how we can get our tomatoes and peppers up off of the ground, out of the soil, and be successful this year. Uh, I hear lots of times folks, they'll they'll call the office or just in passing, they'll just say, man, my tomatoes never made it past springtime or my peppers never did anything all summer. So today that is what we're going to be doing. We'll be talking with local food, small farms educator, Nick Frillman. Uh, but before we get to Nick, we have to get to our co-host with us every single week. We are joined by local food, small farms educator, Katie Parker in Quincy. Hey, Katie. Hey, Chris. How are you doing today? I am doing fantastically. Uh, no complaints here. How about yourself? About the same. Did you enjoy your three-day weekend? I, I did. I did. Um, we ordered a, a load of wood chip mulch, and the guy said, how much do you want? I said, as much as you can fit in your uh, dump truck there, and uh, he did just that, and we moved it all on Sunday and then recovered on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> did you um order some from a local nursery or did you do one of those programs where like the local tree service cuts down trees ch chops it up and has to go somewhere with it i i'm really wanting to do more of the local arborists kind of they have extra wood chips and i would take them i call them quite often i may be on a list on a few other places and they just never show up. So maybe gotcha. I need to be a bit more persistent. But this is actually from a woodworker. And That's cool. he gets a lot of extra trees and stuff that are people just drop off at his place. And they're like, can you make lumber out of this? And he's like, no. <laughs> or can you like <laughs> mill this into something nice? He's like, no, this is, you know, the trunk's like this this wide or you know it's like five foot of straight lumber. And that's about all I could get from it. So uh, he chips them up and yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So, yeah, still so, kind of like a local arborist type. I think so. Yeah, People so cutting down their own trees. But if there are any local arborists listening, I would love <laughs> to take your wood chips off your hands. Please give me a call. I think the term for those things that are like the branches trimmed off the sides of the roads are ramial wood chips. Oh, and if my. I'm and if I'm not mistaken, they have a higher um, like plant available nutrient content. Mm -hmm. Um, and more trace minerals and things than just heartwood and regular old tree wood chips. Those tinier branches have more bark, good for the soil. So I've heard. Well, that so that's also what I've heard too. Actually, if you can get your wood chips, even with the green vegetation still on there, mm -hmm. that's a little extra nitrogen too for your, if, if you're going to compost them, um, since right. wood chips are high in carbon, you add that extra nitrogen in there, you get co uh, compost much faster. This episode is now about <laughs> wood chips. <laughs> we didn't plan on this. We were talking about tomatoes and peppers, but now we're all into wood chips. Oh my goodness. Katie, did you get anything done over the three-day weekend? Um, it feels like I didn't, but <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, all kinds of lawn maintenance. Mm -hmm. uh, worked in the high tunnels um yeah it was nice to be outside we had some good good windy weather this weekend oh um, yeah super windy yeah 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 and now it's raining so that's nice to have all Wait, the things you, you've put in the ground you have a high going. tunnel at your place 
not not like a personal use it's uh through the local community college okay. and they let us use it for the extension office oh nice okay so uh, to help us cover the topic of tomatoes and peppers, we have to bring in someone who knows about tomatoes and peppers, a grower of them. So we are joined by local food, small farms educator, Nick Froman, out of the Bloomington Normal area. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Katie and Chris. Happy to be here. Yes, we are happy to have you. And listeners, I know you're probably thinking, where's Ken? Ken is on a well-deserved vacation. And so he's got his R&R right now. So nice. um Yes, so we'll miss Ken, but we'll catch up with him next time. Um, so, Nick, tonight we're talking about tomatoes and peppers. Um, so we do have, a, this is a lot of ground to cover, I would say. Mm -hmm. So um, I say, Katie, let's just, let's just go ahead and dive into questions right away. Absolutely. Um, so if you're getting started with tomatoes and peppers, what are some of the things that we need to consider um, when planting them, Nick? Yeah, this is uh, this is quite the topic because um, I think Chris mentioned this earlier in the podcast. A lot of folks always complain about their tomatoes and peppers being slow to start, not doing anything all season, air quotes. And to that, I say, how are your site conditions looking, first of all? So a lot of people like to grow these things. Um, love that, you know, fresh tomato on the dinner table during summer. It's just a picturesque part of being a uh, I don't know, a Midwesterner, uh, an American during the summer, a lot of people grow them. Um, and so, but a lot of people have shade issues in their yard. Um, so for example, um, you know, if you don't have about 75% sun in one part of your yard, I'm probably going to struggle a little bit to grow successful pepper and tomato crop. They both really love sun. So that site condition first and foremost um, all that to say, do you have a sunny spot in your yard? Um, if you don't, that it might be a good idea to grow them with a neighbor in someone else's yard that is sunny, maybe a community garden plot, um, et cetera. The other thing we might think about when we think about siting our pepper and tomato plant area for the year is crop rotation. So generally speaking, um, it is not a good idea to plant these crops year after year in the same place. Um, that goes with any crop, um, potatoes, onions, um, tomatoes and peppers, greens. You really want to switch up what you're growing in that in that area year after year so that the pests don't find you. Because if you don't, they will find you or you'll have plant disease problems, etc. Um, and then last but not least, the size of the plant that you're planting is a big factor. So if you only have space for a few plants, I myself have problems putting too many plants in too small of an area. So you wanna really pay attention to uh, the seed packet when it says plant your established transplants X amount of inches apart, usually 18 to 24 inches is what we see for tomato and pepper recommendations um, commercially or in the home landscape. See Nick, I am so lucky to have a house surrounded by shade trees. <laughs> um, I, I really don't have a true full sun area like you know mm -hmm. sun up sun down i there's it does not exist at least within the boundaries of my my property sure. there i get morning sun on one side of the house and i'll get afternoon sun on the other in some spots mm -hmm. and like you said i would have to be planting tomatoes in the same spot every single year if i really want to get that maximum maximum area uh, for the most sun that i can get so i just i have to be creative 
and I have to go from in-ground to containers um, to like different parts of the yard. Like, so uh, folks who drive by my house, if you see a tomato growing uh, out on the front lawn, that's just where I had to put it. So sorry about that. <laughs> well, and uh, there's also some things you can do. So uh, my parents actually don't have a full sun area and they still grow tomatoes and peppers every year. Um, but, you know, those they would be some of the folks that complain about a slow start to their plants because just naturally they're not photosynthesizing as much as plants in full sun. So with 50 percent, 60 percent sun arbitrarily, those numbers are thrown around, um, but it's possible, you know, so uh, give it a shot. Um, mm -hmm. It's only a couple bucks to buy some plants at the nursery. Just don't go buck wild and uh, should be able to try it out this year if you've never tried it out or just keep on keeping on. Um, if you generally do that, like my parents do. And then the other thing to think about is maybe you could plant in the same spot every year. If you did something like cover crops after your, um, uh, tomato, uh, crop is done. Um, and then not to mention removing dead and diseased plant tissue from the area, always, a just a good practice to follow, no matter what you're doing, rotating or not. So that may allow you a couple more years in a row, but yeah, generally speaking, we did, we like crop rotation. However, you could bend that a little bit with cover crops. Rules are made to be broken. <laughs> <laughs> They're more like guidelines anyway. That's right. And the plants aren't reading those books. So uh, no, I yeah. mean, at a commercial scale, definitely like crop rotation is best practice, but for the home grower, yeah, different, mm -hmm. you know, if your bottom line depends on it, Stick yeah. to the best practices, folks. Exactly. So, well, Nick, so about getting things off on the best uh, start, I, I've been growing plants from seed for many years, and, and boy, those first few years were rough. I feel like I'm getting better, but uh, it just seems to always happen. Um, my tomatoes get leggy when I'm getting them started, um, or the peppers also maybe get a little bit floppy. Uh, to, or I will go to a garden center, you know, the, some, some years we just go and we buy transplants. Um, man, some of those tomatoes and those flats are like, like two foot tall, you know, and it's just like this, this like straight, you know, runner, uh, thing. So, I mean, what, what can I do to, to prevent maybe, uh, some of this legginess that's happening? Yeah. You ask, you're asking the hard questions, Chris, but that's, that's why we're that's on what here. we do. <laughs> So uh, yeah, a couple of things to keep in mind here. Um, if you're growing your own transplants, which I do every year because I'm a plant nerd and can't, can't stand to not grow stuff in February or March, um, is uh, if, you're if, you're, if your peppers are still leggy at that point or your peppers are as well, then uh, you need to think about your light. So legginess in transplants when you're growing them or when other folks are growing them for you um, tends to suggest that the light is not strong enough. So, or it may be strong enough, but perhaps it's too far up and that light's being, you know, deflected somehow and not reaching your plant totally. And that's that plant stretching to get more light, you know? So in that case, if you start to see it and it's still early on in the transplant growth cycle, um, you may increase your light somehow in your growing area and you might skate on by and they might, you know, that, that ship might turn around, so to speak. Um, but like you say, if you buy them at the garden center and they're leggy, um, I can't speak to best practices on this one, but anecdotally, I have uh, pruned my indeterminate tomato plants um, back to, you know how sometimes a sucker on a tomato plant 
which is to say a little plant growth between the main stem and a side branch. You'll have a little 45 degree angle little plant grow there. And sometimes it'll turn into a whole nother liter of a plant. Um, sometimes I'll prune back to that next unofficial liter if it's really out of control. But a lot of people, including myself, sometimes don't have the heart to do that. So if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to top your tomato um, or pepper, what have you, then you could plant deeper. So a lot of people, when they're planting tomatoes, will plant up to the plug line. Um, what a lot of people don't know is that if you plant, you know, four to five more inches of your leggy tomato plant, everything below the soil line is going to turn into roots. Um, and that plant will root out from that stem with contact of soil. Um, so you can plant deeper and you could bamboo or plastic stake it. And so that legginess will definitely straighten itself out in the full sun um, of the outdoor environment. And then between uh, adequate support and planting deeper should be okay. Because the tomato is more herbaceous type stem, whereas pepper has, over time, it'll form kind of a woody stem. So we would not be planting peppers deep, right? Um, that's correct. As far as I know, the peppers do not have that ability to, to root out on the side like that if you were to plant the stem a little deeper. Um, in that case, for a leggy pepper, um, yeah, anecdotally, once again, um, I look, I, I'm looking into researching this and actually doing a, um, a trial in the next year or two on, on uh, topping peppers to uh, create stockier, more um, uh, lodging proof uh, varieties or performance rather, um, especially with those heavier peppers like bell or your frying peppers, etc. Um, but that none of that is um, uh, researched yet. So um, without suggesting that, I would say that the best path forward would be uh, just planting with a stake, making sure that you twist tie your pepper or figure out some way to attach it to that stake so that when we get those crazy, you know, spring to summer storms and uh winds of various uh, speeds and strengths that uh, your plant doesn't snap what about fertilizing our tomato and pepper plants do we need to do that yeah that's a great question um thanks for that one katie and uh something really exciting just happened today i just got my soil tests back from uh the uh purveyor of a uh, soil test of choice this year um i won't name names but uh, the test looks uh test results look fantastic um not only what what it's showing uh nutrients wise but just the the legibility of the test itself i love when you get a soil test and you can actually make heads or tails of it right yes. like kind of yes. right away um yeah. and that should be a whole episode in and of itself is how to test why to test how to use it etc mm -hmm. and you guys have probably all done that before but well, we need to do it again because you're right, Nick. I I love a good soil test result. I don't I do not like it when I get like just random numbers and sometimes they no name and names, but sometimes they don't even put is this parts per million, mm. um, like pounds per acre. Like, how do I know what unit I'm in here? And so I gotta <laughs> go do some internet research. Yeah. Um, and you know um sometimes that's the name of the game but there are vendors out there who do put ppms and who do put pounds per acre and who you can call and ask what does this mean? can what do i do here and is this a good idea and they'll you know spitball with you for a while um so anyway um so back to the question do we need to fertilize um in my case apparently the answer is yes but just a little bit Normally for these crops, these are both super heavy feeders in the same realm as I would say 
um, potatoes, onions, and then you could lump in uh, tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, things that are making big, either, you know, uh, tubers, bulbs, fruits, whatever. Those are generally like high nutrient input crops and your fertility in the soil needs to be right. And if it's not, you need to supplement with fertilizer. So the answer to the question here is, ideally you should run a soil test first. Um, however, uh, you know, I did pay, I think $65 to soil sample and not everybody wants to do that. So if that's the case, um, generally speaking, the non-soil test recommendation is a light application of nitrogen only fertilizer prior to planting or at planting. And then what you can do um, if you're on a shoestring budget throughout the season is uh, kind of just watch the reactions of your plants. If you see yellowing, it's usually a sign of nitrogen deficiency. If you see intervenal color differences, uh, that could be something related to potassium. That's also another whole episode is like fertility of the garden. Um, but yes, uh, you do need to fertilize your tomato and pepper planting area prior to planting, most likely. Um, if you're in my boat, uh, you inherited some really awesome native fertility at your project sites and you don't need a whole bunch. So that was my good news for today is uh, they said, look into fertilizing next year. So they think that I have enough fertility in my soil to just get me where I need to be pepper and tomato wise, which is fantastic news. What kind of soil test did you do that was $65? It is called the soil health. Well, right. It's so called you were the looking soil at soil health as well. Yeah. And I okay. was interested to know what, what all that meant. Um, you could just do a nitrate test, but that's, I've never really been interested in these like one test value soil tests, unless mm -hmm. you have a diagnosed problem with this one nutrient or that one nutrient and you're or you're shooting for a specific parts per million of magnesium or calcium or something like that um in my opinion you know a, a, a broad spectrum soil test of all the macros and mi micros um organic matter percentage cation exchange capacity um if you're soil testing already and you're sending away for one nutrient you may as well you know just buckle down and send away for the whole rest of them because you can make a cover crop decision based on that. You can make um, a fertility recommendation or, or decision based on, um, you know, where you are, are at in the growing season. So most people um, like the soil test at the end of a season prior to the next one, because it shows what's been removed from your soil after your crop and what, it, you know, your subsequent crop may need. Um, in my case, it had been two years since any of these sites were sampled, and I let time get away from me, and I didn't test prior to planting. So I put down a very light nitrogen, potassium, um, phosphorus, uh, organic um, 464 general purpose garden fertilizer, and it turns out that my potassium, uh, my let's see, my phosphorus is actually almost problematically high. So that's why it's not a good idea to uh, just apply fertilizer without knowing what you're dealing with. And they say I'll be fine, it's not a problem, but the value says VH for very high and they mean it. So um, I don't need to apply that one for a while. Yeah, I think we might have a, uh, a show on the docket, maybe in the future on fertility 
Um, Nick, we need to have you back here with your soul test results so we can dive into what oh. those are and what you did because of them. I would love to show my soil test results as just a, an example of like how it looks because uh, I don't mean to brag, but one of my sites has like 10% organic matter and it's really cool to see. Wow. That's so, awesome. Wow. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, so I you're, didn't... you've been doing cover crops on your sites. Yeah. Was one that of them... just since you've been there? Yeah. Yeah. I have been doing cover crops on, on two sites. Um, one of them is, uh, one of them has never been tilled except for the planting day. That's the refuge food forest. Um, and another one, uh, since I've inherited it, has not had a deep tillage event. It has a couple, has had a couple shallow tillage events. That's the Unity Community Center food production and demo garden. And on that one, I have done three no-till cover crops in a row um, on the part of the garden that I sampled. And that was, that one had uh seven percent organic matter i believe so uh but yeah i'd love to uh share the the um, layout of the soil test and we could check it out later i love it getting shows in the bank here we go <laughs> um so uh nick the other struggle that can really be especially um you know for a lot of gardeners is weed control uh, as you mentioned, we have beautiful soil here in Illinois. You can grow almost anything, and annual weeds are definitely no exception to that rule. They really are the first ones to sprout. They're there to colonize, to cover that soil. That could become a problem in a garden, though, um, because soil, we think of it maybe as like this. It is a massive volume, but the roots are only occupying a finite space. Weeds are competing for those resources alongside with our, our vegetables. So um, what can we do to help us with these weeding tasks that must be done? Because they could become overwhelming. Yeah, that is um, a question that is perpetually asked, but only, um, you know, as a angry afterthought. <laughs> people usually ask this question when they have weeds begun to begin to take over and if they're taking over your spot uh you're a couple weeks late to the party in terms of uh managing it and what most people don't realize is that if you can fight them back when they're you know a half inch tall an inch tall two inches tall then you're gonna save yourself a lot of heartache um you know weeks later if you don't address those at that point so a couple of different ways to address weeds um we could think about them we could think about this in two main stages i'd say first is at planting and then the second stage is throughout the you know growth cycle and um so just start at the beginning you want to plant in a weed-free area so whether or not that means rototilling your garden row that you're going to plant your tomato and pepper in or if it means if you're into the no-till thing um, some people uh, do a cover crop in the winter before, and in my case, I did a, um, I did a 13 different species cover crop, and some of them died in the winter, and some of them regrew in the spring, and that was all intentional. But the easiest thing for, uh, you know, tomato and pepper crop the subsequent year would be to do a, a winter kill um, field pea and oats cover crop. Both of those will will winter kill. Um, oats may regrow just the slightest bit. Um, probably not with a cold winter and that will lay down like a mulch on top of the soil after it dies and so 
Um, that's usually planted in August, very early September, the year before. Um, that'll grow until November or December and then die. And then hopefully if it grew enough, that'll provide enough weed suppression and organic matter cover on top of your soil so that you will have minimal um, weed emergence, uh, winter annual weed emergence um, prior to planting of your warm weather vegetables in, uh, in May. And so in, in that case, you will have some weeds, but it'll be less than if you weren't to do a cover crop. Um, so you'll have to go in there with your hoe of choice and uh, take care of the weeds that are there, um, maybe even hand weeding any bigger weeds that popped up. But you wanna do everything in your power to minimize the weed pressure at time of planting. Then going into phase two of the weed control here, a um, couple different options. Number one, you could do what I did this year and plant your plants in your row and then use landscape fabric um, in the furrows. Um, so in the walkways between rows of plants, um, staple them down with landscape fabric staples. Um, and then between the plants, I've applied a two or three inch layer of compost, um, not only for a little bit of like boosted fertility when it rains, leaches out some of that good stuff in the compost down to my plants, but also that really nice mulch layer keeps weed pressure to a minimum. Um, other people do landscape fabric over the whole garden bed and then plant and then, you know, cut out holes and plant their transplants of, of uh, peppers and tomatoes through there. Or yet others don't apply any landscape fabric and just stay on it and weed their garden every week with, with their hoe of choice. Um, but the bottom line is you're gonna need to do something um, or they will uh, make your life a little bit miserable. So the landscape fabric, that's kind of like, um, you would call that a synthetic mulch, right? Like a, what about wood chips? So I, like I said at the top of the show, I got a bunch of wood chips I, um, I'm using those as my weed suppression, at least for this year, because not only do I have the weeds, but we're planting in a former lawn. And so we got a lot of stuff that wants to come up through there. So we're kind of smothering everything. And, uh, yeah, so something like wood chips or, uh, would, or straw, would that work as well? Yeah, a lot of people use a lot of different materials. Um, I, I prefer landscape fabric so that I don't have to, uh, you know, do what you guys did on Sunday mm -hmm. and spread mulch all day. Um, however, I know a couple of uh, growers, especially in the no-till community, um, really uh, prefer wood chips for their pathways and they're laying on, they're laying it on thick. So I guess my one reservation for, for any type of non-synthetic uh, mulch is if it's not thick, Weeds are going to come up. Mm -hmm. Weeds are going to come up through that. Um, and they still may, you know, in your case, but I know you're on it with weeding. Um, some other folks may not be. So I find landscape fabric to be um, more uh, applicable for folks that have other things going on in their lives, you know, and aren't out in the garden every single day. Um, however, um, I've seen lots of successful operations with wood chip pathways and then with straw between plants where things are not wood chipped. And as long as you're um, diligent about uh, making those mulch applications on the thicker side and then taking care of problem spots, either by hand weeding or hoeing um, or another method of cultivation, um, yeah, there should be no problem with wood chips and, and straw. So maybe yeah. we should do a comparison at the end of the year and take some pictures. I think so. Yes. <laughs> I And I lay them on thick just to let you know. My mom came to visit and she said, oh, that's a nice berm in your yard. I'm like, that's not a berm. That's Those are wood chips. That's my garden. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. 
And and uh, and the fertility aspect of wood chips, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning, depending upon your wood chip source and what part of the tree they came from, um, you know, you may you may totally be winning out in terms of the you know what is this amendment that I'm spreading on my soil going to do for my plants. I definitely think wood chips has something more to offer than uh, man-made landscape fabric. So um, yeah, there, there's that consideration. Um, so last year, Nick, we bought um, a new type of, of tomato and it turned out to be indeterminate, uh, which we usually try to avoid, but um, it became an unruly beast. What is a typical thing for growers to do to prevent tomato plants for, from becoming overwhelming? Um, yeah, that is another fantastic question. They always, yes, they always do become unruly beasts, even when um, well-managed. I think that's just, that's a, kind of like, I feel like why people like them. It's just, I think some people are gluttons for punishment and like the challenge. Um, others, uh, however... <laughs> I can't uh, stop buying indeterminate tomatoes. I might be one of those people. I, I, I think you am, are. Yeah, yeah, I'm also one of those people. So I can attest to this. Um, but then, you know, you have the professional growers too. So let's split this up into, once again, those two boats, because this is kind of the community I serve. So I get commercial grower questions and I get home grower questions and everything in between. So for uh, folks at home, um, just growing, you know, anywhere from a couple to... I don't know. I grow probably 10 to 20 indeterminate tomato plants every year. And that's way, way, way too much for me, like almost every year. But what we do is we bottom prune the bottoms of our tomato plants. Once they're about two to two and a half feet tall, we bottom prune every branch um, at least a foot up off the ground. We also plant really deep, like we mentioned earlier. And what we're doing there when we're bottom pruning our tomato plants is we're allowing just like when I have my apple pruning class, I'm pruning for air circulation, light penetration, and that airflow and light penetration are helping to avoid disease issues, at least at the soil level. Um, I know it can, you know, uh, soil pathogens can come up from the soil, when, especially during heavy rains, um, but that's step number one for the homeowner. Step number two would be investing in um, some nine gauge wire style fencing. Usually you can pick up a roll of, uh, you know, four foot tall, five foot tall, nine gauge wire fencing at a local garden store. Um, I've long since abandoned ship on those store-bought tomato cages. That is the easy way when your plants are a foot or two tall, that's gonna work for determinate tomatoes, sorta kinda, especially if you get bigger ones, that's not gonna work for indeterminate tomatoes. I have bad news for folks. That's it. That's the bad news. It's not that bad. So that back to that fencing thing, I will um, unroll that fence that I buy. It's not an insignificant amount of money, but for for pruned, nice looking tomatoes, it's worth it to me personally. And I'll unroll that fence and I'll cut probably a six to seven foot um, portion of the fence off. You're going to need, um, you know, wire cutters um, or like just the base of a uh, uh, pliers usually has that portion of the plier where you can cut wire. So I'll get a nice six, seven foot long section of that and I roll it into a tube, right? So you make, you're making your own tomato cage out of nine gauge wire farm style fencing. Um, and with that, um, I'll kind of wrap it together and the portions where I cut, I'll bend them into each other so that they stick. 
I'll send you guys a picture maybe, and you could include this in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I'll stick that in the ground around my tomato plant. And then last year I thought that was enough. Turns out it's not enough. Um, that plant is going to get really big and really heavy with fruit and it's going to love that cage until the first really big summer storm. And then that weight of that plant with uh, just those tiny little metal tines from the fence sticking into the ground, it's gonna go sideways in a hurry. So um, last but not least, you hammer like a seven foot uh, garden tea post into the ground next to your plant um, so that it's resting right in the middle of your tomato cage so that it'll have a little, that cage will have some wiggle room, but it won't be able to fall over if your garden tea post is hammered into the ground there. So that's the homeowner side. Mm -hmm. Commercially, um, most growers grow tomatoes these days in a high tunnel. Uh, a lot of folks do paste tomatoes outside, um, but for indeterminate tomatoes, those are typically trellised um, on a nine gauge wire or similar that runs the length of the high tunnel, um, usually about you know eight foot off the ground. And then we'll run another wire lead down from that cross wire and trellis the tomato to the wire, prune to a single leader. Um, right. So one main stem got to be on it with tomato pruning oh, yeah. and then bottom pruning as well. So um, long story short, pruning is good um, for disease and for just for, you know, that one leader and then adequate support. And those are really the two take homes. Would you yeah, agree, I mean, Katie? Did I miss anything as the fellow local foods educator and Chris, the fellow tomato connoisseur? I think you covered it well. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Think, and if folks ever get a chance, I mean, if you've never seen a high tunnel full of single liter trellis tomatoes, that's really cool. Especially the indeterminates because they get so tall, they have to lower the, uh, the uh, they have to unkind of tether the, the vine and you start getting this like massive like circle of stem and because they keep bottom pruning it and mm -hmm. it's, it is an operation. Nick, like you said, you have to have people on this constantly pruning. And so, um, yeah, I often think like everyone should probably grow tomatoes and peppers just to know how hard it is. Yes. Um, and if you really like doing it, keep doing it. If you don't want to let do it, support a local grower like that. So that's yeah. a really fantastic point. I should have done that at the end of my little spiel there as well. It was, but, uh, yeah, like you said, um, it's not easy. Um, it's definitely nothing really in the in the world that we inhabit is uh, air quotes easy. And anybody who says so either hasn't done it enough or has been doing it for so, so, so long that they actually <laughs> know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, pay attention and you can distinguish the difference. <laughs> I can't wait for that day. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, when I'm when I'm an old man. <laughs> mm -hmm. I can wear socks up to my knees and no one says anything. That's right. <laughs> Um, so Nick, I guess on the vein of, of problems, I know a very common problem, and I see this just every single year, is with both tomatoes and peppers, an issue called blossom and rot. Um, this can be something you have your fruit just about to set, um, you know, you see it coming on, and then poof, there's something happened at the blossom end, the, the, the bottom, usually, of that fruit, and it starts rotting. What in the world how do you avoid this yeah so this is yeah probably the most asked tomato question for sure um 
So blossom end rot is caused by a calcium deficiency, yes. Um, however, our native soils in Illinois, I, I can't speak to, you know, maybe the Illinois-Wisconsin border area, even though that's where I grew up. I guess I can kind of speak to up there. I'm from Lake County. Um, and then I've lived down in central Illinois for the last, you know, eight or so years. I can't speak to southern Illinois, but most of Illinois soils have um, sufficient, if not a massive amount of calcium in the soil. And so when I say blossom end rot is caused by a deficiency in calcium, um, people that know a little bit about our native soil say to me, well, I have calcium in my soil, so what's the issue? The issue is that's a really big cation compared to something like potassium or magnesium, We're getting into soil chemistry a little bit, so stay with me, folks. But, <laughs> um, but calcium is a really large cation um, within the uh, tissue of uh, your tomato plant. And what it needs to move that calcium from the soil to the plant is water. And what happens, um, what typically happens is people get uh, really um, into gardening at the beginning of gardening season, and they're constantly on it with the water. And that's fine. I mean, you shouldn't overwater or underwater. Um, that's a big conversation right there, but they're on it with the water. And then eventually as the season wears on, um, some folks, you know, peter out and don't go uh, into the garden as much um, and or we get some really crazy droughts or really crazy wet spells. Um, and so what blossom end rot is at the core is inconsistency in watering, which in turn causes um, the calcium to be taken to the plant and then not and then taken to the plant and then not. And so at that point, the plant doesn't have enough calcium to form uh, fruit well, and it starts to abort the end of that plant or the end of the fruit. And you see that nasty brown kind of squishy part at the end of the tomato, and you start to have problems. So how people can best um, prevent blossom end rot is consistent watering. So what that means to um, one part of the state, one type of soil versus another part of the soil in another part of the state that's different. So I can't really say water one inch every day to all the listeners, because if your soil is completely different than mine, that might be not enough or it might be too much. But so however much you water your tomatoes, just stick to that schedule and you should be good to go with blossom and rot. Wow. Wow. Nick, you took like the soil chemistry thing and you explained it in a way I haven't really heard before and it totally landed. That's that's why I love doing this show because you pick up these nuggets from people and we talk to. That's great. Right, Katie? I isn't that's like totally wow. Love it. Take that snippet and create just like a, a short video out of it. Exactly. <laughs> Use it from here on out. So um what about like uh sometimes too, like right before we're getting ready to harvest our tomatoes, we notice that the skin is split or it has cracking. What happens in that instance? Yeah, I, I know slightly less on this topic than I know about blossom end rot, but from my understanding, um, the same thing uh, happen, can happen to various vegetables. So last year, um, as an aside, uh, right before sweet potato harvest time, right about Halloween, we had about three days in a row where it just dumped rain in central Illinois, and it just kept going and kept going. And then right about October 31st, November 1st and 2nd, some nice fall weather, nice and sunny. 
went out there to harvest and there was not a single sweet potato that was not like Frankenstein's monster, like mm -hmm. cracked beyond recognition, going to be really difficult to peel, totally edible, not a problem whatsoever, but just marketability. You know, I was growing them for the family, so marketability is not a concern for me, but it is if you're a high tunnel tomato grower um, and that ends up happening to you or what have you. Typically speaking, this is also a water consistency issue as far as I understand it. So if there's a really big rain event, um, especially when it's hot uh, for several days beforehand, um, that plant is trying to catch up with its water needs as quickly as possible. And it's going to soak up all that water from the soil. And it's got it's trying to stretch its tissue and grow a bigger tomato. And tomatoes are mostly water, so it would reason that if your plant is taking in too much water and your plant can't keep up with that and its growth, it's going to crack. Is that your understanding as well, Chris and Katie? That, that seems to be mm -hmm. what happens in the garden every time. It's like, uh, all right, I'm not going to water today because I know it's going to mm -hmm. rain tomorrow. And then like, it dumps buckets and then suddenly the the tomato, AK mm -hmm. water balloon, just... just <laughs> AKA water balloon. Uh, it just like starts splitting well, yeah. and also there's a lot of breeding going in because i think there's some genetics at play here yes but i really think some some varieties maybe can combat splitting and cracking but the mother nature always bats last in this argument here and it you know if well if that takes a little bit more rain i think she's going to dump a little bit more rain and then you're going to get that cracking happen yeah and i think what's going on and i know less about this as well but i think what's going on in the genetics and breeding tomato world uh vis-a-vis -vis the cracking question is uh they're breeding for thicker skin um mm -hmm. or maybe it's thinner skin i'm not sure which one but i would just venture to guess that yeah you're right and that you know we can only breed so far um, just like we can breed tomatoes that are resistant to a virus or a bacterial disease. But if it's a really nasty wet year and there's and that bacteria is present, um, you know, it's not impossible that a resistant uh, like my my favorite tomato um, is bred to be resistant to tomato mosaic virus. Um, mm -hmm. However, I know someone last year that grew the same tomato and had tomato mosaic virus. So even though the seed packet said, resistant it's not always resistant you put enough stress on any living thing and yeah. its resistance goes complete, yeah it's down we're yeah. we're dealing we deal with uh, living organisms you know uh for for uh a career so like yeah we are in in nature as much as people would like to um control things to a point that we're not um but but we are we're dealing with li living organisms that will respond to pressure for sure mm -hmm. Then life will find a way, as Dr. Yes, Ian Mal always does. Put it. Yes. So, Nick, you have a couple questions for us as well. Um, and I'm excited for this. I think these are probably the best questions of the whole show. So, I think we should dive into these here. Um, what is everyone's favorite method of weed control? Um, I know that I got on my landscape fabric high horse for a minute. Um, and uh, Chris talked about wood chips and uh, straw. But in terms of, um, you know, tools, methods, methodologies, uh, something else we didn't cover. I don't think I heard Katie's favorite for, you know, uh, I don't think I heard her pick a side or, or lend a, another option. So 
um, yeah, let's get into that. If there's like a favorite hoe or um, if you all just, you know, roll the dice and don't mulch with anything. Um, yeah, how do you all do it? Um, so usually, I mean, uh, in my mind, pulling weeds is a little bit therapeutic because uh, hmm. I love seeing like a, it's the same thing for cleaning for me. I love seeing a dirty, dirty environment and then like cleaning it and you have mm -hmm. something really clean. Uh, and that, it's the same concept for weeding. Like I, I enjoy weeding uh, unless you're working in like super clay soil where it's super hard and you can't pull weeds easily. Um, but when you get into a large space, it, um, it can become uh, a little backbreaking after a little while. And so in the high tunnel, uh, we use a lot of straw um, in bad places or like places where um, we've had a lot of issues with weeds. I uh, will put some newspaper down underneath the straw to help to, to add some uh, extra control. This past year, um, just with maintaining the high tunnels as well as having a garden at home, um, Matt, my boyfriend, uh, does a lot of like the home maintenance and he does not like weeding. So um, we just took some grass clippings and put that down. Uh, he has some, he, he really likes sweet corn. So our garden is mainly sweet corn. Um, and so we put grass clippings down around um, his corn plants. But one thing you do have to, it, with like uh, the newspaper, the, the uh, straw, and then too with the grass clippings, we just try to uh, monitor it, make sure that we're not getting any de nutrient deficiencies um, with any tie up that could be from the soil, adding all that extra carbon to it. Mm. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, that's what we found it works out well. I'd say if you like to weed and feel like you're a little dangerous, flame weeders are fun. <laughs> <laughs> but there's like such satisfaction of pulling up the plants and like oh, getting yeah. all the roots and you get that yeah. tap root. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it is fun. Yeah. It is. I'll, I'll say one thing we're experimenting with this year with some of our food donation gardens is we have ordered some of the paper mulch, um, kind of like newsprint almost mm -hmm. in a way. And, um, so we're experimenting with that with some of our rows. Um, one garden is using it in their walking lanes really just to keep weeds down that way. Um, Another one, we're just we're just planting transplants in it, just cut a hole in it and see how it works. And um, so that's an experiment. But I would say one of my my therapeutic part of weeding is using a like a collinear hoe or a wire uh, cultivator, a wire weeder. And this is the one with like the six, seven foot handle where I don't have to bend over. And I could do that all day long. But with the smaller garden, probably do it for like 10 minutes once a week. And as long as you get those weeds when they're small, like, like you mentioned, like you just got to get them as they're germinating. Uh, you'll, you'll manage most of your weed problems. And just occasionally do I have to bend down to pull a more stubborn weed? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I was on the farm, I worked at as a vegetable farming apprentice prior to extension, um, they indoctrinated us into the um hand hand hoe culture very early on in the season and their opinion is if you don't like growing if you don't like um 
hoeing, you have no business growing vegetables. Because <laughs> <laughs> there are th some things that you can do things like landscape fabric for. So we rolled out landscape fabric and burned holes into it to plant tomatoes and peppers but then you can't do that with carrots you have to hoe yeah. you have to mm -hmm. um and when they're when the weeds are this small and for people just listening in the podcast i'm showing like an inch tall or a mm -hmm. half inch tall if you look and you know what you're growing you know what spinach or kale or arugula or carrots or whatever looks like when it's small if you see anything else in your growing row this is the thing I get. I see, I hear people who say they don't know what, what are weeds and what are crops. But if you've grown that crop before and you've seen it small, you know what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And then you can say, okay, anything that doesn't look like that is a weed or it's a volunteer uh, vegetable or whatever flower from last year. But either way, I don't want it between my carrots. So it's going bye-bye. And yeah. like Chris said, if you get that one with you know, a tall handle and you don't have to bend over, then the only other thing is holding that hoe like a broom with your thumbs up and your back straight. Because I've definitely seen people use stirrup hose, collinear hose, wire weeder hose, what have you, just bending over halfway down the thing. And I can feel their, I can feel my back crunch up just a bit, just watching them. And so there is definitely a technique to it. And there's lots of um, YouTube videos, both extension and, and, you know, garden enthusiasts and what have you, um, that are all about, you know, proper, proper hoeing technique. So mm -hmm. definitely a good, good call to check those out. All right. Oh yeah. Right. So the other two questions of mine here, um, yeah, just some, uh, less seriously, uh, questions, favorite pepper variety from Chris and Katie. Um, it looks like Katie's muted. I'm going to start with Chris real quick. Well, Nick, for years and years, I've been growing um, the, um, oh man, way, what, oh no, there it goes, my brain blank, but it's back, the Carmen variety, um, it's the, uh, what do you call those, the horn, the, the, they're like bell peppers, but it's more of the horn type uh, bell mm -hmm. peppers, um, I really like those, they, we've done them a lot for the food donation garden here, mm -hmm. they put on a lot, they taste good, they, they hold well, and so they do well in food pantries. I have gone slightly obsessed this year with poblanos. So this year we're growing an orange type and a red type. The orange type oh. is aranos. The red type is trident. Um, and I'll say many of the plants I'm growing this year is because I picked Ken's brain last year when I ordered seed. Mm. I'm like, Ken, what, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Ken is, he's just a fun guy to go exploring seed catalogs with all right well next uh seed catalog ordering season um i'd like to be included in the uh you know uh, cultivar selection party <laughs> we, will, we, we need to make this a thing yes well and and i'm always interested there are a couple of colleagues of ours that are doing that or i guess maybe not anymore now because one of them left but that we're doing variety trials across the state with mm -hmm. tomatoes and peppers and i mean this doesn't have to be official although it could be um, you know, how things uh, perform in Macomb versus Bloomington versus Chicago and elsewhere are definite and Dixon Springs, Southern Illinois, that's not going to be the same. We're going to have different results and because we have different weather, different soils. Um, and maybe the breeders, you know, did their job well and we have the same results. That would be cool to note, but I'm always down to try new things. And I've never grown uh, Bablano and I've never grown Carmen, surprisingly. So I have Fair to try fun. that. Yeah. Katie, what about you? 
so I I don't actually eat a lot of peppers anymore. <laughs> uh, I used to love them as a kid, but then uh, I got old and I got acid reflux. Oh. And so peppers are one that cause bad acid re- reflux for me. Um, but uh, we do like jalapenos. Um, and so this year we're trying a new variety called, um, I think it's like Craig's Grande jalapeno or something like that. Um, so we'll see how that compares to our basic jalapenos that we've grown in the past. My favorite pepper to grow is, uh, Padron. Mm-hmm. It is a Spanish uh, variety of pepper that I was exposed to when I studied abroad in Spain during my undergrad degree. And um, since coming back from that in 2017, I think that was, um, it's become super popular. I've seen it at some farmer's markets. I've seen it served at some restaurants. It's typically, um, they're about probably about four to five inches long, give or take. Um, and, uh, they're about, uh, probably time and a half bigger than a jalapeno. And they're usually fried whole, um, in Spain, um, in olive oil in a really hot pan, and then sprinkled with some sea salt at the end. And nine out of every 10 are super flavorful with just a hint of hint of heat. And then one out of every 10 mysteriously is a scorcher. (laughs) So it's, yeah, it's a game of roulette for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're always, a really nice uh, side dish in the summer. I like to fry them up and then let them cool down. Um, eat them outside with a garden salad and a nice burger, something like that. Just really good, um, really good dinner accompaniment dish right there. The Padron pepper. I'll, but, I'll add one more to this one, Nick, because I, I did receive, this is kind of the fun part of, of gardening. So a uh, gentleman who owns a Mexican restaurant, he actually brought seeds of a chili that his family has grown for generations. Oh my gosh. So he, he brought them over here. And so I was lucky enough to get one of these pepper plants and I, I've been saving seed and I saved seed this last winter and they're really, really neat. It, it's a plant that grows like straight up, straight up and down. And then on the branches, it gets these orange, bright orange chilies. Um, it's got some heat, but very, very, it's actually more ornamental for me in some, some respects. So, um, but it's a beautiful plant, uh, produces some, some hot chilies. So yeah, there's some of those other fun things that we can do with some of these um, open pollinated or heirloom type veggies. Yeah. And uh, all right, well, you, you cracked open the world of spicy, so I'm going to have to mm-hmm. add one more here before all we right, move on to tomatoes, but uh Man, last year and the year before and the year before, um, I grew a lot of super hots, mm-hmm. like 500,000 Scovilles or higher super hots. Mm-hmm. And uh, last year, I stumbled upon one called um, Jay's Peach Ghost Habanero. It's a cross between ghost pepper and uh, Jay's Habanero or something like that. And I think the Scovilles are like a solid half a mil. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, when you eat them, um, I don't know. I got into this thing where a couple times every summer I'd get together with a fellow pepperhead, um, now Dr. Eric Walski of mm-hmm. the Savannah Institute or Canopy. I can't remember which one. But uh, yeah, we have a video of us eating a Trinidad scorpion um, a couple years ago. And it's just 20 minutes of straight pain. Mm-hmm. Um, Jay's Peach Ghost Habanero, on the other hand, 
um, eat the whole thing. And it's just this instant explosion of papaya, mango, little bit of carrot, little bit of passion fruit, um, and yeah, pepper flavor, but it's just intensely fruity. And then about five to 10 seconds later, the back of your throat starts to go numb and just it's this whirlwind of spice pain. And when it's all over, every, you've, you've survived this like internal fight or flight reflex and the leaves on the trees are more green. And you're like, oh, wow, the birds sound so great tonight. And yeah, as long as you don't do that within an hour or two of bedtime, I found that um, capsaicin therapy, especially just for work and life stress in general, has for me personally been really good. So I usually grow at least a habanero or so um, hot, you know, a variety like that. Um, at least one every year, just so I can have that option of you're having a bad day, eat a hot pepper. When it, you come out of it, suddenly your day has turned around. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. I, I have, I, not to name names, but I have at one point in time seen Carolina Reapers in a grocery store labeled oh. as jalapenos. <laughs> like you can't mistake those two things. This is a, no this was just it was an accident obviously oh my goodness <laughs> i feel bad if anybody did buy those and was like i'm gonna make some jalapeno oh poppers oh my goodness oh yeah so but yeah, yeah. we're we're well, we're gonna get way off the the rails here so yeah uh, i apologize oh no no it, i think it's on the rails i mean if you're passionate about growing peppers you, mm-hmm. you get into it you know so um all right and that brings us to our final question i think unless y'all have another one for me which is uh, what are y'all favorite varieties of tomatoes? Hmm. I'll, I'll stick to, I guess I could start with mine if you uh, sure. if all need to think about it. But um, last year I tried a variety called Marbon and I'm not going to name names, but um, Marbon is a hybrid version of the long popular French heirloom Marmande, but with improved disease resistance and vigor. High yields of seven and nine ounce fruits. Um, flavor is one is among the best. A smooth, soft texture. Um, anyway, folks can find it if they look for it. But um, super powerful, indeterminate variety. Um, expensive seed. It's out of stock right now because I'm looking at the page. Um, but uh, the seed packet was something like $15. And I saw that and I just had to try it last year. And I was looking for a big red slicing tomato and I gave it a whirl. And it was by far and away the best performer. Uh, It's like the new mortgage lifter uh, is what I called it to a friend last year. Um, It took a little while to get going, but once it did, we were harvesting that thing every two days and we were harvesting probably, I don't know. I did the nine gauge wire cage method that I told y'all at the beginning of the show. And we were probably harvesting several pounds every other day off of each plant. Um, It was pretty intense. And so if you're looking for a food donation garden, like I know I am, and I think you are too, um, or high tunnel um, variety testing, Marbon is definitely one to try out. Too bad we can't get seed. (laughs) I know. Um, Making notes though. Right. It says item estimated availability is August 29th, 2022. So check back at the end of August. For next year. Yes, exactly. 
So what about you, Katie? What's your favorite tomato? Um, we tried a fun one last year. It was called a, a black cherry tomato. Um, it was cool. It was like a, a unique color. And then it also had really good flavor. Um, and so we'll, we've grown that one again this year. Um, uh, we I'd like to try some unique stuff. So again, this year, we're going to do like a yellow pear. Um, we also did a new one, had really good reviews. It was like, um, I don't even know, a grapple, a grapple or something like that. Uh, and so hopefully we have good success with those. For my like traditional tomato growing that has been Juliet's for many, many years, it's just been a mainstay for the food donation stuff. It just performs every single year. Uh, good fruit for good storage for for moving to different food pantries at home though and last year also I came became obsessed with bicolor tomatoes I might have talked about this on the show before so two different types of colored on one tomato um, so Brad's atomic grape is a cherry type tomato um, I think we read the description before the show as like an assault on the taste buds. Um, it was good. I, I think it's good. I think the color though, for me was more of just like, wow, this is so neat. Cause it changes color from uh, being unripe on the vine to uh, then ripened up. And I'm still not quite sure what is ripe with that tomato. Um, other than I get it, I squeeze, it's a little bit soft. I'm like, all right, I think it's ripe. I'm going to eat it. Um, yellow dragon is another one I tried. It was a yellow and kind of purpley uh, color very cool looking tomato flavor is not that great um but then after some indeterminate therapy with katie and ken who sat me down and talked to me and said chris stop doing this to yourself try some determinate tomatoes this year i'm doing a determinate roma called little napoli um so i'm i have that in the ground right now it looks amazing so i'm looking forward to my life in the world of determinate tomato growing. You won't go back. <laughs> yeah. I, I will say um, I, I went um, I went crazy with determinate tomatoes last year because I eat a lot of pasta with red sauce and I wanted mm -hmm. to make my own sauce and we did. And then we got, and then we made more sauce and then we made more sauce and then we gave some away and then people stopped taking our donations. <laughs> and it was just like, I think I have, I think I have 20 pounds of paste tomatoes in my chest freezer that I still haven't used yet. And, uh, they went, they went nuts. Um, I had three or four different heirloom varieties from a local producer here in the area that just killed it last year. Amazing. But I do not like the trellis paste tomatoes. I don't, I don't like it. And that is a requirement if you want them to perform well is the Florida weave style thing. If you have a yeah. full row of paste tomatoes, unless you're doing really big wire cages that you could buy at the store, which I was like, no, nah, I got some T-posts and some twine. That is, uh, it's not, not um, easy, but it's especially not easy when you're coming home from a full work day and then you're like, goodness, I have tomatoes to trellis and you got to do it again. <laughs> And then you got to do it again two weeks yeah. later. Basically what you're shooting for is, you know, six mm -hmm. to eight inches of separation per line of twine, um, unless you want them to flop over and break. And once you're halfway to the finish line, you got to go the full way. Otherwise all that work is for nothing. Yeah. So anyway, I've, I will say I've been 
into the world of paste tomatoes. I think I'm going to stick to one or two with like a cage and that's it for me. Yeah. I, I'd say that's my biggest moral of my tomato and pepper story is that I could probably grow fewer tomatoes, but I might be able to grow more peppers. I, I, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. that's, that's where I'm at right now, at least this year. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, all right, had to sneak this one in here. Honorable mention for my best tomato. It's an heirloom, not a hybrid. Is purple Cherokee, mm-hmm. probably the best, one of the best tasting tomatoes I've ever had. Um, near and dear to my heart. Um, grew it on the farm I worked on. Good performer. Um, I love. I just like stories of seeds being saved from generation to generation, and. Um, our thought, these are thoughts that have been passed down from the Native American Cherokee tribe of Tennessee, and they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think that's a perfect one to end the show on because we've talked about a lot of different types of tomato and pepper varieties. Mm-hmm. But if I go to my farmer's market, I know I'm going to be able to find purple Cherokee, and I know it's going to taste good. Yes. So, folks, check them out. They're one of the best. Well, that was a lot of information about tomatoes and peppers. Uh, Nick Froman, local food, small farms educator in Burlington, normal area, Burlington, Bloomington, normal area with the Burlington Railway. No, I'm sorry. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. It was a good time. And um, yeah, please, uh, let's let's definitely do that soil fertility episode some point soon. Yes, we got that coming up because fertilizer is a big topic right now. So we got to yeah. talk about it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, the Good Growing Podcast is produced by Winnie Ferguson, edited this week by me, Chris Enroth. A special thanks to, well, Ken, who's off on his own exploring the wild world. Um, so we miss you, Ken. We'll see you next time. But Katie, thank you so much for being here this week uh, on the show. Absolutely. Thanks, Nick, for joining us. And thanks for all the great information. So listeners, thank you for doing what you do best. And that is listening. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, watching. And as always, keep on growing.